Father, we are uh, grateful to be here. We're grateful to be in this building. Lord, we're grateful that the, the smoke has subsided in, in our region at least, and pray it would do so in the other regions as well. Lord, we're thankful to gather together. We're thankful that you called us unto yourself. And Lord, we pray even for those this morning that may not yet have that relationship with you, Lord. Today, you would bring about an understanding in their heart through your holy word. We pray that we, as we seek to draw near to you, Lord, that you would answer that promise that if we seek you, search for you with our whole hearts, you'll be found by us. And Lord, every one of us today, we need to do that in a fresh way. And so we ask that that would occur. Lord, we pray for those distractions, those uh, disturbances that are in our own hearts that may cause our heart and mind to be somewhere else right now. Lord, we just want to put them aside for a bit. Lord, that we can come into your presence, that we can hear from you. And we believe, Lord, that is what you've created us for, is to be in harmony and in fellowship with you. And so, Lord, uh, unhindered this morning, we, we long for that. And so we ask that you would hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, as I said, we're in 1 Timothy. We're in the second chapter of 1 Timothy. Last week when we were together, we looked at a few verses in that second chapter. And since it was only a few verses, let me just reread them as we seek to gain a context of where we are. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 2, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now you remember the greater context of the book is Timothy was sent to this city of Ephesus to kind of put things in order in the church, things that have drifted away from that order that Paul had established when the church was originated. It was going to be Timothy's job to go and attain that order once more and then to stay there for a bit and maintain that order. And the very first of the instructions that Timothy is given in that process to fulfill that charge is to get the people to be praying. And so as individual Christians, as Christian families seeking to raise young people, as a church, is to get the people praying. Get the people praying uh, and bringing their needs to God. That was called supplication. Get the people bringing other people's needs to God. That was intercession. Get the people praising God for who God is, what God has done. That was, as we learned, prayers, prayers of praise. And then finally, get the people into this hard attitude of gratitude where they're giving thanks for who God is, what God has done, how he has answered their prayers, how he has directed their lives. And listen, if you want to be a healthy follower of Christ, and you want to have a family that is moving in that direction of health, and you want to be a healthy church, then we need to be a people that heeds Paul's instructions. We need to be a people that are about prayer. Now you say, well, what should I pray about? There's so many things. Well, Paul gives us at least one thing, one thing that you can know for certain that God would have you praying about in verse 3. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So in verse 1, he said, pray for all people. 
In verse 2, he said, pray for all of those who are in authority. And then in verse 3, he doesn't specifically say what we should be praying for. But I think in the context of that call to prayer, and then that follow-up statement where he says, it is good, and this is what God desires for all people, I think we can you know, pretty safely assume God wants us to be praying for the salvation of all people, including those that are in authority. We should be praying that people would be saved. Now, last week when we were together outside, we spoke about prayer not being so much about changing God. I don't go to, to pray and change God. All right, I'll do it. You know, you convinced me. Rather, primarily, we go to God to have prayer change us, where God brings our thinking in line with his, his thinking, where our will is conformed into or transformed into his will. Warren Wearsby, he said this, it's often said that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on the earth. And so a, a statement like that would force us then to ask that question, well, then what is God's will? And I think this verse here and these two verses, it couldn't be more clear. God's will is that all people will be saved. Now, again, that's a phrase maybe we're familiar with. I heard people talk about being saved. Have you been saved? Uh, and things like that. Saved from what? It's a question that we need to be asking ourselves and make sure we have an understanding of. Saved from what? The answer to that is the judgment that our sin deserves. The judgment that all sin deserves, but specifically the judgment that my sin deserves. Have you been saved? Have I been saved from that judgment? The scripture teaches a few things you're, you're no doubt many of us in this room familiar with. Romans 6.23 teaches that the penalty for sin is death. It's a familiar verse. It says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The scripture teaches that the soul that sins will die. We read that in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son won't suffer iniquity for the father, nor the father for the son. But again, the soul who sins shall die. The scripture teaches that death entered into the world by sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, wherefore, as by one man's sin entered, uh, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed to all men. And so that is a universal truth that you find weaving its way through the entirety of Scripture that all have sinned. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin leads to death, and the universal truth weaved through Scripture is that all have sinned. A thousand years before, Sol before Paul Solomon, the man who's referred to as the wisest man who ever lived, he stated on two occasions, the first time in his prayer of dedication, remember when Solomon had the temple built, and that temple was done and it was ready to be, started to be used, and he came and he prayed a prayer, a beautiful prayer, I think it's chapter 8 of 1 Kings, he prayed this beautiful prayer dedicating the temple. And in that prayer, he said this, when they sin against you, the people, he's talking about the people, and God bless the people. He says, and when they sin against you, and he says, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to an enemy who takes them as captives to his own land, whether they be far or whether they be near, he'll go on to say, hear their prayer. But notice that statement there, for there is no one who does not sin. 
That was the start of Solomon's uh, kingly uh, reign, probably around 20, 30 years old he was at that time. At, toward the end of his life, he said this, Surely there is no righteous man on the earth who, who does good and never sins. You can add in there, it's, it's okay in this case, who always does good and never sins. That's the meaning there of the term. Surely there is no righteous man on earth who always does good and never sins. And so if the wages of sin is death, and there was no one on the earth, there is no one on the earth that has never sinned, then every one of us is looking death square in the face. And to be saved is to be saved from the coming judgment upon sin. And who is it that needs to be saved? Well, all people, because all have sinned. And so per Paul's instructions, we should be praying for all of those that are in authority. As we learned last week, praying for them to have wisdom to lead, praying for them to be strengthened for the task that is theirs, praying for them to govern in the fear of God, knowing that ultimately he is the one that any person in authority, leadership position, will give an answer to. But also, and perhaps most significantly and importantly, Paul says that we should be praying for those in leadership that they would come to the knowledge of the truth and that they would be saved. We should be praying that prayer for them. And not only all of those in authority, but notice he says, for all people. God desires that all people will be saved. The Apostle Peter, he said it this way. He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. Notice, not wishing that any should perish. I suspect there may be some people in your life that just drive you crazy. They really push your buttons. Maybe even wrestle with, man, I hate that person. There may be a little tinge of, oh, I hope they get theirs. But what we know of God is there is no one that he wishes would perish. That he has a heart and a desire that all would be saved. And as the Second Peter quote comes to an end, that they would reach repentance. There is not a person, there never has been, there never will be, whom God does not wish to see saved. Now maybe as I say that, maybe there's someone you have in mind that you love. I said earlier, you're thinking of someone you can't stand. Maybe there's someone you really care about. But you think, you know what, they've just gone too far. I mean, they, they'll, they'd never get saved. And so you've kind of dropped them off your prayer list, and you, you've picked up those that are close. They just need a little more prayer, and they'll get over God would have you pray for that person that you think is the furthest possible away. And this morning, maybe there's some of us here, some of the rooms on the side that are um, watching as well, maybe you think you're that person, that you have gone so far, you have done so much that God would never take you unto himself, that if you came into his presence, he would say, not you, move along, I got plenty of other people. You got to rethink that. You got to take it to the scripture and let the scripture wash over your thinking because that's incorrect thinking. There is no one that God will not receive back unto himself as they reach repentance, as Peter said. Nobody is so far gone. So let that be an encouragement to you if you need it, but certainly to your prayer life if that's something that you need to be praying for those that need God. That's the character of God. That's the heart of God. That's the nature of God. 
And part of what it means for us to walk here on the earth with God is to have him transforming our insides, who we are, our heart, that it's more like his heart. And that's the heart that God would have us to have, that anybody can be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to the heart of God. This is what he said through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but this is what I have pleasure in, that the wicked will turn from his way and live. Then God issues a, a, a cry. He says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. A little later in the prophet Isaiah, a little earlier actually, in the prophet Isaiah, Notice how the Lord pleads for the lost to come to him. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And the one who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear from me that your soul may live. Do you sense his heart, his desire for the lost? The book of Ezekiel again, the prophet said this, the Lord speaking through the prophet, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. And so the word of God, it couldn't be more clear. And it states it again and again and again, that it is God's strong desire that the wicked not perish, that nobody perish. But instead, it's his desire that they would repent of their sin and that they might be forgiven of that sin. God desires that all people would be saved. Now, some have asked this question. Well, if God so desperately wants people to be saved, then why doesn't he just go ahead and save people? Why not just forget everything? You know, you're good to go. Come on in. Or I'm going to zap you and make you saved. Well, at least one of the answers to that important question is that God does not and he will not save a person against their own free will. God will not fulfill his desire to save all men by making all men, all women, as robots that are programmed that they have to love God or worship God. Now, how God's sovereign omnipotence is all-powerfulness, is that a word? I'm not sure. But the fact that he is all-powerful, how that coincides with man's free and independent will, that's a mystery. People have been trying to figure it out, and every now and again, someone will write a book, and they say, I got it all figured out, this way or that way, one way or the other. Nobody can figure the whole thing out. Somehow, those two completely opposite ideas, God's omnipotence, his sovereignty, and man's free will and independence, somehow God figures it all out, and he works it all out. And I think it's a mystery that we'll fully understand when we get to heaven. But here's what we do know. Somewhere in his wisdom, our sovereign God has enabled each man and woman with a free will to determine for themselves whether or not they shall be saved. And to do that, to be saved, as Paul goes on to say in verse 4, notice, he says, a person must come to the knowledge of the truth. And so our job, those of us in this room that are believers, that means God has placed us on mission, the great co-mission. He has sent us forth to make disciples. Our job and our responsibility is not to solve the puzzle of election versus free will. 
You can get together with your friends. You can talk about it, debate about it, you know, search the scripture for it. That's cool. But that's not our primary responsibility, to figure it all out. Ours is to share the good news of salvation and to share that good news of salvation with all people in hopes that they will come to the knowledge of the truth because, again, God desires that all will be saved. However, for all to be saved, even for any to be saved, one person even to be saved, there must be a coming to the knowledge of the truth. It's ours to go and to bring that truth. Now notice that. It's a coming to the knowledge of the truth. Not a truth. This isn't a message, you know, for some cultures, Christianity, you know, the Western cultures, Europe and Americas or whatever. But, you know, you go to Asia and they have other truths and you go to parts of Africa, they have other truths and so on. That's not Paul's thinking. Paul says that they might come to a knowledge of the truth, not a truth. And certainly not, these days we hear it a lot, your truth. What's your truth? Now, that can completely disagree with where I'm at, and we could be in totally different ballparks, but it's your truth, and that's all that matters. That's silly. Come on, I'm not trying to be rude, but you know that's not true. That's not how life works. That's not how things work. There is a truth. Paul will go on to say, notice, there is one God, not many, and there is one mediator, not many, between God and and men. This is verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. A mediator. God desires for all people to be saved. You've heard me say that a few times now. I'm going to keep emphasizing it so you understand it and we understand it. But in order for any person to be saved, they must, there must come about in that person an understanding, not just a head understanding, but there must come about a hard understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, Paul here, he calls Jesus a mediator. More specifically, he declares him to be the one mediator. And he says, between God and man. A mediator is a go-between. It's a middleman. It's one who can sit between to and communicate to both. So you think about a situation where people have a language barrier. A mediator would be one that sits in the middle that knows both languages perfectly and is able to communicate with both of them. You think about people that have a, uh, they're, they're fighting of some sorts here. A mediator would come in, be able to impartially listen to both sides and be able to mediate between the two of them. Jesus here is called our mediator. And as God in the flesh, man, Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and man because he is both God and man. He's able, if you will, to put his one hand on God the Father and his other hand on humanity and serve as a valid go-between that understands both parties perfectly well. There's a hand that is touching deity because Jesus himself is deity, and there is a hand that is touching humanity because he himself became a man to reconcile humanity. He is the one that Job, in the book that is named Job, he is the one that Job so desperately uh, longed for. You remember the story of Job, where Job, life was moving along swimmingly. Everything was great. You know, he had it all together. He tried to be a righteous man, live a good life, and nice family, nice job, farm, all this kind of stuff. 
And then one by one, all of those things began to go away. People got sick, people began to die, his houses burned down, all this kind of stuff. One by one, all these things began to go away. And people began to come up to him and they're like, you know what it is, it's because you're a sinner. He's like, I, I get that, I know I am, but I'm not. I didn't do anything. You know? And he's trying to understand this whole thing. Why is God mad at me? And then he cries out, he says, if only, these are his words, if only there was someone to mediate between us, me and God, someone to bring us together. That was his desperate cry because there felt like an alienation between God and man. If only there was someone in the middle. Paul answers that question. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. You've maybe seen the little sketch that people draw sometimes when they're sharing the faith. And they put God way over here, they put man way over there, and in the middle there's a chasm. And then they draw a cross, a bridge, that brings this side and this side together. That's what Paul is saying here. And because he is the only God-man in all of human history, Jesus can be the only valid way that one can come to God. Now, maybe some people think this. They say stuff like this. Maybe they think, well, Paul didn't quite understand. Paul wasn't really around with Jesus. He came up you know, after the fact, so he misunderstood some things. Well, this is what Jesus himself said. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That seems to be what Paul is saying, right? So he seems like he understands what the Lord was saying. The Lord very clearly said, no one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles Peter and John, they were with Jesus essentially from the beginning of his public ministry. This is what they said. They said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Now, this is as they are standing before the Jewish council. They're on trial. And they said this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, Jewish council, the builders which has become the cornerstone, reference to Psalm, the Psalms, I think 110, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, Peter and John said. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so because Christ is the only mediator, every one of us, and everyone you care about, and every world leader, all of that, must come to God through Jesus. Now, if I may make a quick aside about this idea of being a mediator. This verse, and each of the verses that I've also been pointing at to sort of supplement it, is a perfect place to look to answer the question as to whether it is ever appropriate or if even if it has any effect whatsoever for us to go to God by any other means. And there are sometimes people that name the name of Christ. I'm not talking about somebody from some totally different religion. But people that would name the name of Christ and say, yes, I'm a Christian. There are some that think they need to go to God through another means besides Jesus. And so the angels, I'll go to the angels and the angels will get me to God. I'll go to the saints and the saints will get me to God. I'll go to Mary and Mary will get me to God. This uh, passage here couldn't be more clear that there is one God, there's one mediator between God and man. And so it's neither appropriate nor is it effective to direct your prayers to anyone other than Jesus, other than God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so if you've been praying to the saints in your day, you should stop that, to be frank. If you've been praying to Mary, you should stop that. If you've been praying to the angels or anything else, you should stop that. 
If you're a Christian, you can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. It is he alone that stands between us and the Father. Now, this idea of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, I understand. I'm, I, I walk around on earth here, too. I understand that that runs counter to the pluralistic religiosity of the world in which we live. I understand that it runs counter to a world that rejects the concept of exclusive religious truths and increasingly rejects the concept of exclusive truth of any matter, one that we all agreed on not too long ago. Be that as it may, the fact that it runs counter. Truth is truth. And as much as in our day and age people would like to, we don't take a poll to determine what truth is. You know, 72% of America said, yeah, cool. <laughs> but we don't take a poll to determine what truth is. Truth is truth. Now, Paul goes on to say, there was only one that gave himself as a ransom. I'll read it in its context. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You remember Jesus' words? There's a well-known passage. I'm sure you'll recognize it once I begin to say it where Jesus likened himself to the good shepherd. And he said the good shepherd cares for his sheep and so on. Uh, John chapter 10. In that passage, Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now notice this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He says I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep. It wasn't some horrible accident where they got him. Oh, man. And then he's like, watch this. I'll twist it around. I'll make it work out for good. He laid down his life for the sheep. You remember following Jesus's transfiguration. He was up on the mount. There was a few of his disciples that were there with him. And it says in that passage, this is Matthew 16, that Jesus began to show his disciples, explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And he says, for, by whom? By the elders, by the chief priests, by the scribes. Then notice Jesus says, and be killed, and on the third day be raised again. Now one of those men that was there with Jesus at that time on the mount was Peter. And Peter protested. We've got to stop talking about this killing stuff. We've got to stop being so negative. And so Peter's response was this. He takes Jesus the Lord aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus, the Lord. And he said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. Now, it's Jesus' response that I want to draw your attention to. Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter in a very, very strong manner. And he declares that that sort of talk, Peter, serves as a hindrance to me and what I have come to do. The words are this. He said, get behind me, Satan. Yikes. He says, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus Christ came to die on a cross. Peter here, seeking to prevent that from occurring, was being a hindrance to him. That was the reason I came. There's another instance. Jesus was praying, and he says this, now is my soul troubled. This was leading up to the crucifixion in just days or night, hours really. 
He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Then notice Jesus' words. He said, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Why did Jesus leave his place in heaven and come here to the, to the earth? Grow up as a man, do all that he did. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus came here to the earth to die on a cross. He was on a mission. And that mission would culminate at the cross. And so notice, in fulfilling that mission, Jesus didn't pay a ransom. He didn't put a whole bunch of money down or something like that. But what Paul says, notice what he says, Jesus became the ransom. Jesus became the substitutionary payment that would be made for our sins. You remember some of the final words of Jesus on the cross? It, it's translated in a lot of our Bibles in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that, thankfully, they translate that into our language, English, so we would understand it. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were the Lord's words as he hung there on the cross. Jesus cried those words because for the first time in all of humanity, he experienced separation from his father as he, the sinless one, took upon himself the sin of humanity. Now, you and I, we have sinned against God before. And so we know what it feels like to have a separation from God. He never did. And he refers to that separation he experienced as the sin of the world came upon him. He refers to that as being forsaken of God, as if the Lord turned his face away. You know, there's a wonderful hymn. It's called a modern hymn, I'm told, by my friend Kyle here. There's a modern hymn, and in there it declares, the father had turned his face away from the son. It goes on, he says, behold this man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. And the reality is, anyone who sings that, it's not just their sin. It's not just my sin, but it's the sin of all the world. Jesus gave himself as a payment for humanity's sin. He put himself in our place and received the punishment and the wrath of God the Father that our sin, every one of us, because all have sinned, that our sin deserved. Now you know that a ransom is a price that is paid to release or set someone free. Paul says Jesus gave himself as a ransom. He paid the price to set someone free. And who is that someone? Paul defines it in two words. It's right there in uh, verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself as a ransom for all. That tells us that the work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient to save all sinners. Again, to go back to something I said earlier, there's not a one that can ever say, yeah, but not me, I've gone too far. I like the way David Guzik uh, commented on this. He said, there's enough in the work of Jesus on the cross for everyone. No one will be turned away because Jesus ran out of love or because Jesus ran out of forgiveness at the cross for them. The death of Christ was sufficient for all. Now, sadly, and some will, will stop there and they'll say that means eventually everyone's going to go to heaven. Jesus Christ died for all, and it's sufficient for all. Sadly, as we all know, not everyone will take advantage 
of that all-sufficient sacrifice. And so while we can say that the reconciling work of Christ on the cross was all-sufficient for all people, that all-sufficient work will only be efficient, so it's all-sufficient, but it's not efficient for everyone. It's only efficient for those that actually respond by placing their trust in that work as the means by which they can come back to the presence of God. Again, if man is here and God is there and Jesus is bridging the gap and you go off in this particular direction, well, then you don't come into a relationship with God because there's only one mediator between God and man. And so while it is true, it is true that God desires that all people will be saved and that he has made provision for all people to be saved. Sadly, and I hope it troubles each of our hearts, sadly, not all will be saved. There's one God, one mediator between God and man. And to be saved, a person must reach his or her hand to the one that is holding God with his other hand, Jesus Christ. A person's salvation, as Paul goes on to say there in verse 6, a person's, or it was actually in verse 4, depends upon them coming to the knowledge of the truth. A person's salvation depends upon their believing the good news that Christ died for their sins. And that's the message that Paul was entrusted with. That's the testimony. Look at verse 6 there. That's the testimony that Paul was given that he would bring to others. The testimony of the word of God. Now, some might say, you know what? You tell me God loves me. Prove to me God loves me. There's one place that I can point to. There's one place that we can point to to prove that God loves you, and that's the cross. You remember Paul said in another place, God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died, I'm going to add, on the cross for us. As perhaps the most well-known scripture in our Bibles tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes on him would not perish but would have eternal life. That's the message that was entrusted to Paul. That's the message that Paul entrusted to Timothy. That's the message that each one of us have been entrusted with as well. The same God who desires the salvation of all men and provided the way of salvation for all men, has commissioned us, his followers, to bring that message to all men, all people. The commission is ours now to go forth with that testimony. And so notice what Paul says, verse 7. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He adds, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, in the New Testament era, it was a given that the message of the long-awaited Messiah coming and doing what he did, it was a given that that was for the Jews. But notice what Paul here as he says, look, that same message needs to be proclaimed among the Gentiles as well. The two races on the earth, Jews and Gentiles, not black and white and Asian and all that, Jews and Gentiles are the two uh, races on the earth. And we know that it was going to go to the Jews Paul here makes it clear that it was to go to the Gentiles as well. That is, it's to go to the entire world. So think back to last week. Paul began this paragraph by telling us that we need to pray for the whole world. 
all people. Then, right in the middle of that paragraph, he speaks of Jesus' all-sufficient work for the whole world, for all people. And now here, at the end of the paragraph, as he brings it to a close, he tells us, he gives us this charge to proclaim that good news to the whole world. You see the scope of what we're talking about? All people. Pray for all people. Jesus did a work for all people. Now go and tell all people. After he told us we should be talking to God about men, he then tells us to go tell men about God. And that's the commission. That is what we seek to do here, to share that truth that though those men, those people, those wicked ones, though they are yet sinners, that Christ died for their sins and that he was buried for their sins and that he was raised again for their sins. And that resurrection is an evident that the payment was accepted. Death could not hold him. And this morning, we're going to celebrate communion. It seemed appropriate for us to do so. Now, I know that a lot of what I just shared is familiar with many of us in this room. And yet, and communion is familiar with many of us in this room. And sometimes what tends to happen when things are familiar, we're like, uh-huh, 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 skip ahead. You know, get to the point there. But Jesus instructed his disciples to take this bread and to take this cup often. And when you do, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we rehearse often the work of Christ on the cross. Today's message, for those that are, are familiar with this, rehearsed Christ's work on the cross, a message you've no doubt heard before, and many of us, I know, have responded to. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate communion in obedience to what the Lord told us to do. So let's pray together. We're going to have the worship team return. Our guys are going to hand out, and gals perhaps, are going to hand out the elements. Father, we, we don't want to be so familiar with these concepts we considered here briefly this morning that they have no impact on our hearts. But we want to be a people that are continually brought back to the wonder of the cross. That God loved me so. That he would even stoop down to become a man, his own creation. That he would go to a cross and suffer the physical pain and the humiliation. And that he would do so with me on his mind. That he loved me so much he desired that there no longer be a separation, but that the gap would be bridged. That myself, that all of us here could come into a relationship with him. But we want the wonder of that to kind of take over our hearts afresh this morning and be at the forefront of our thinking throughout our week and weeks and all our days. And so, Lord, as we continue to meditate on these things, do a ministering work within us, we pray in your name.